Hello and welcome to Legacy of Brutality. This is me, your boy, Hollywood Steve of the Dead and Lovely Horror Movie Podcast. On this episode of Legacy of Brutality, we're going to talk about the rise of Hollywood. We're going to get into Lon Chaney. We're going to talk the Universal Horror Films and so much more. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the Hayes Code and its effect on horror films. We're going to get into the rise of B-movies. We're going to talk Val Luton and a whole lot more. But this week, we're talking about Hollywood and the first golden age of horror. I will say before I start this episode that uh, this will be exclusively focused on the history of horror cinema in the United States. I'm going to be talking about some of the things I skipped over last episode where I focused more on the uh, French and German filmmakers, but uh, this time we're, we're really going to get into the history of film in the United States, the rise of Hollywood, and talk a whole lot about the universal monsters and universal horror in general. So in the early history of cinema in the United States, Thomas Edison had established the first motion picture studio in West Orange, New Jersey. So from 1907 to the 1920s, Fort Lee, New Jersey, which was just across the Hudson from Upper Manhattan, would become a popular place for filming with a whole bunch of film companies. There were a lot of film companies based in New Jersey itself and, and several, of course, in New York City. The Champion Film Company would build the first studio in Fort Lee. Champion was one of many independent studios that was trying to make films under the rigid conditions of the Motion Pictures Patents Company. Throughout the 1890s, Thomas Edison owned the majority of the U.S. patents relating to motion picture cameras. Edison would engage in constant patent lawsuits against his competitors, basically just crippling the film industry in America for a while. He went about establishing a trust with other film manufacturers and companies called the Motion Pictures Patents Company. This trust owned 16 motion picture patents and just dominated the film industry before being broken up by a United States District Court in 1915 for violation of the Antitrust Act. And throughout that time, independent film companies like Mark Dentonfass's Champion Film Company were trying to find ways to escape Edison's lawsuit. So Dentonfass would eventually join with many other independent studios, including Carl Limley's Yankee Film Company, to form the Independent Moving Pictures Company with studios in Fort Lee. Limley used a little trick where he gave billing and screen credits to his performers. <laughs> Unlike Edison, this attracted a lot of the biggest names, surprisingly. Limley was able to attract performer Florence Lawrence. That's right. She's not a garbage pail kid. Her name just rhymed. Uh, away from another film company that was called Biograph. She gained popularity being in Biograph films, but she was only known by the name of Biograph Girl. So Limley convinced her to come work for him, and then he immediately spread a rumor that she'd been killed in a streetcar accident. He then combated his own rumor by announcing that the biograph girl herself, Lawrence Lawrence, would be starring in an upcoming film produced by the Independent Moving Pictures Company. This is a man who knows how to manipulate the press. 
See, Biograph was part of Edison's MPPC, but they had originally been excluded in an attempt by Edison to squeeze them out of the industry. So, despite the fact that they became part of the trust, they also were working on the side trying to figure out a way to get away from Edison. So in 1910, they sent their young director, D.W. Griffith, who's uh, well-known for directing Birth of a Nation, which uh, it was both a, a motion picture triumph and a racist screed that brought back the KKK. So, a bit of a checkered legacy. Anyway, they sent out D.W. Griffith to Los Angeles under the pretense of shooting a short drama called Ramona, which they actually did shoot. But Griffith had a second agenda to determine if the West Coast would be suitable for a new studio. So he gets to downtown LA, starts doing some shooting, asks around, and gets told that a good place to shoot is a little village nearby called Hollywood. Griffith would be the first to ever make a motion picture in Hollywood. It's called in Old California in 1910. By the next year, the first film by a Hollywood-based studio was shot. It moved fast. People started recognizing, like, we can get away from Edison. We can avoid his lawyers. They won't know what's going on. I mean, this is a time where it's, it's not so easy to get out to the West Coast. By 1928, Hollywood was the home of four major film companies. The famous Players Film Company, which became Paramount, Warner Brothers, Columbia Pictures, and RKO. Pretty impressive for a city that had a ban on movie theaters when... D.W. Griffith got there. Limley's independent moving pictures company would become the Universal Film Manufacturing Company in 1912, and in 1915, Limley would open the world's largest motion picture production facility, Universal City Studios, in the San Fernando Valley. Limley leaned hard on advertising campaigns to attract an audience because he didn't have the theater chains that Paramount, Fox, and MGM had. And then Universal found their first big box office draw in the 1920s, Lon Chaney. Lon Chaney's a very interesting person. After his first wife publicly attempted suicide by swallowing mercuric chloride at the Majestic Theater in downtown Los Angeles, where Chaney was managing a show, the ensuing scandal and divorce forced Chaney completely out of the theater, to where he was exclusively working in film. In his first five years in film, he worked under contract for Universal Studios, mostly bit parts and character roles. After 1917, Cheney became a free agent. Uh, he would continue to work with Universal, but worked all over the place. It was in his role as the Frog in Paramount's The Miracle Man that Cheney's talent as an actor and as a makeup artist would first shine. Cheney was especially proficient at makeup. He had learned to do his own makeup while working in the theater and did his own makeup throughout his film career. Cheney would also endure pain to make a character come to life. In Goldwyn Pictures' The Penalty in 1920, Cheney plays a character who's lost his legs below the knees. So Cheney created this apparatus where he would bend his legs back and, and tightly bind his lower legs and then put his knees into two buckets. So it looked like he was missing his lower leg. The look and performance are actually so convincing that Goldwyn Pictures included a short epilogue showing Chaney standing and out of character so people knew that Lon Chaney hadn't had his legs cut off. 
Cheney established himself in the penalty in Treasure Island in 1920, and he wanted to play the role of Quasimodo. So Cheney went and bought the film rights to The Hunchback of Notre Dame. As I said last time, The Hunchback of Notre Dame had already been adapted several times in the early days of cinema. But Cheney brought something special to the role, and Universal gave him far more artistic approval and control because of his ownership of the film right. Universal went all out with the sets, attempting to recreate the Notre Dame Cathedral and the surrounding streets, taking over six months to complete. The cost of the production would soar to around $1 million. The investment would pay off with at least $3.5 million at the box office. And while grotesque in appearance, thanks to Cheney's makeup skill, his portrayal of Quasimodo engenders sympathy. His gentle, dog-like appreciation of Esmeralda turns very readily into animalistic rage as he saves Esmeralda from the evil Archdeacon Jahan. But the definitive Lon Chaney role, and the one with the most impressive makeup effects, is the first English-language adaptation of Gaston LaRoe's The Phantom of the Opera. The novel had gained some popularity in 1910 as it was released as a serial in French, British, and American newspapers. If you aren't sure what a serialized novel is, it's basically where they release a chapter at a time in the paper or a magazine or something of the sort. Carl Limley had actually met Gaston Leroux in Paris in 1922, and Leroux gave Limley a copy of The Phantom of the Opera, which Limley read in one night, and quickly bought the film rights with the intention to have Lon Chaney star. And, and he, he, boy, I'm telling you, he starred. If you've ever seen Lon Chaney in Phantom of the Opera, you know how effective his makeup and his performance are. He stuffed wadding into his cheeks to raise his cheekbones, used a skull cap to raise his forehead several inches, and masked the skull cap by adding these pencil lines to his brow. He, he glued his ears to his head, painted his eye sockets black, added white highlights under his eyes to give this skeletal effect, grease-painted lips, rotten false teeth, and the, the real big element to his look was the upturned nose, which he was able to create using a piece of fish skin and, and wires. The wires would actually make Cheney bleed. Uh, he pretty regularly seems to have suffered for his art. In the film, when he's first unmasked by Christine, many of the audience members reportedly fainted at the horrific sight. The soundstage Carl Limley commissioned for Phantom of the Opera was an accurate recreation of the Paris Opera House built with steel girders set in concrete. It actually stood in the Stage 28 soundstage on the Universal lot from 1924 to 2014 when it was finally dismantled and put into storage. And one last Cheney film that's definitely worth mentioning is MGM's 1927 mystery film, London After Midnight. It was directed by Todd Browning, who we'll talk about more in a bit, and starring Lon Chaney in one of his most masterfully rendered makeup designs as the man in the beaver hat. I don't know, sounds scary, right? He had these sharpened teeth, this amazing eye effect that he achieved using wire fittings that he wore like monocles. It just creates this amazingly frightening character that actually inspired 
Jennifer Kent's design for The Babadook. Unfortunately for the world, like so many of Cheney's films, London After Midnight is now considered a lost film. Though several stills and images exist from the film, and they're definitely worth seeing. Even more unfortunate for the world, Cheney died just three years later in 1930 at the age of 47. Died of a throat hemorrhage caused partly by bronchial lung cancer and partly by an infection he incurred when some artificial snow made of cornflakes, not, not the cereal cornflakes, but actual flakes of corn, lodged in his throat during filming. Cheney was beloved by audiences, other actors, and, and even crew members who he would regularly go to bat for against the executives who paid them too little, worked them too hard, and took no care for their health and safety. Notoriously private and disdainful of the glitzy Hollywood lifestyle, Cheney once remarked, between pictures, there is no Lon Cheney. As I mentioned last week, many of the people involved in the German expressionist movement had fled the rising Nazi threat for Hollywood, and three names connected to the German Expressionist movement would help to further expand Universal's horror movie library. Director Paul Linney, actor Conrad Veidt, and cinematographer Carl Freund. Carl Limley invited Paul Linney to become a director at Universal and moved to Hollywood in 1927. Linney had worked as an art director on various Expressionist films, as well as directing the 1924 anthology film with horror elements, Waxwork. His first Hollywood film, the Cat and the Canary blends German Expressionism and humor to adapt John Willard's play of the same name. It's one of the earliest examples of an intentional horror comedy. The next year, Paul Linney would direct Conrad Veidt in The Man Who Laughs. Veidt had experience in horror acting, having played the somnambulist in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Ivan the Terrible in Linney's film Waxwork. Veidt was vehemently anti-Nazi and would leave Germany permanently in 1933 before eventually moving to Hollywood in 1941. He would perform in two horror films for Universal, The Man Who Laughs and The Last Performance. The Man Who Laughs is an adaptation of the Victor Hugo novel of the same name. Its most enduring legacy today is the product of the work of Jack Pierce, Universal Studios' in-house makeup artist. Get used to that name, you're going to hear it a lot. Bates' character Gwynplaine is disfigured as a child with a Glasgow smile, being cut from the corners of his mouth to the ears. Pierce's makeup is very effective in creating that illusion, and the whole effect of the character's slick back hair, white skin, dark eyes, and lips would prove especially haunting. Eleven years later, in 1940, Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson would use an image of Vate from The Man Who Laughs as inspiration for their new Batman villain, the Joker. Unfortunately, for some reason, Universal shelved the film and didn't release it widely until November of 1929, which was just after the silent film era had very definitively ended. Hollywood had begun producing talkies exclusively. Synchronous sound on film had already been developed in 1919, and the first film released with audible dialogue, The Jazz Singer, premiered in 1927. Maybe why Universal shelved the last performance, because they had just seen somebody speaking on film. The first horror talkie was The Terror, released in 1928. It was based on a play that ran for over 200 performances in London, but it seems that no one was very impressed by the film, and the original author, Edgar Wallace, expressed doubt that talkies would ever compete with the stage. He was wrong. By the end of 1929, the stock market had crashed, 
the great depression was on and despite all that movies were making money like crazy uh probably because people needed a diversion from the reality of the great depression this would be the beginning of the first golden age of horror film just a year before carl limley had appointed his son carl jr head of universal pictures as a 21st birthday present nepotism aside carl jr delivered universal's all quiet on the western front won the best picture oscar in 1930 1931 saw the beginning of a series of horror films that included the universal monsters which would dominate the next decade of horror cinema the universal monster group that we imagine these days was actually formulated over a period of 30 years and originally included cheney's the phantom Though the Wolfman was first introduced in 1935 with Werewolf of London, the iconic Wolfman we all think of, played by the son of Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr., wasn't introduced until 1941, and the creature from the Black Lagoon wasn't released until 1954. We'll talk more about the full extent of the Universal Monsters Library on the next episode, but for now, let's just stick with the horror films of the 1930s, because there's a whole lot to talk about. Unlike Prana film earlier had done with Nosferatu, Carl Jr. actually went about legally acquiring the film rights to Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. His vision was to make a Dracula film on the scale of his father's Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera films. His screenwriters carefully studied F.W. Murnau's film and borrowed heavily from the Broadway play that was a huge hit at the time. They even directly lifted the scene in Nosferatu when Renfield accidentally pricks himself and starts to bleed, enticing the Count. The production also used the Broadway play's star, Bela Lugosi. Lugosi pushed himself for the role and eventually won over the executives by accepting to work for just $500 a week for seven weeks, making the star of the film's total salary less than 1% of the total budget. While Todd Browning, who I swear we will talk about more in just a bit, was normally meticulous and hands-on, on Dracula, he ended up leaving cinematographer Carl Freund to take over a large percent of the shoot. Freund had worked as a cinematographer on numerous German expressionist films, such as The Golem and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. The special effects used in Dracula are more akin to a, a theatrical stage show, they use fog and lighting and rubber bats. The makeup is extremely basic with Jack Pierce. Remember I said earlier, you're going to hear that name, Jack Pierce. He, he created a special grease paint color for Lugosi, but then Bailey Lugosi just applied it himself. And while the film is a talkie, it does use a couple of intertitles and the style of acting employed is definitely a holdover from silent film. But... Lugosi's magnetism, the look of the film, and the perfectly serviceable story helped Dracula to eventually make a profit of $700,000. Carl Jr. immediately announced plans for more horror films. Ten months later, in November of 1931, Frankenstein premiered. British director James Whale was brought on to direct. In fact, Carl Jr. offered Whale any property he wanted whenever he brought him on to work at Universal. Whale had been a director for the theater, and theatrical directors were actually proving to be better at directing talkies than silent film directors. And Whale's film does an amazing job of capturing the spirit of Mary Shelley's novel, specifically Dr. Frankenstein's God Complex and a sympathetic portrayal of his creature. 
Frankenstein has many standout elements, but Jack Pierce's makeup combined with Boris Karloff's performance are the most memorable. Boris Karloff would sit through four hours of makeup each morning, but he and Jack Pierce created what is the most enduring image of Mary Shelley's creature character. Uh, the performances of Karloff and, and Colin Clive as the Doctor are both wonderful. The film also introduces the now stock character of the mad scientist lab assistant, although the Doctor's assistant in the 1931 Dracula film is named Fritz and not Igor or Igor. Paramount also released a significant horror film in December of 1931. It was another adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The 14th adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's novel apparently was the charm. It's considered by many to be the definitive adaptation of the novel. Of course, there were probably some fanboys of the 1920 John Barrymore version complaining that there are too many remakes these days and Hollywood's all out of ideas. Barrymore was actually asked to return to the role. He was just already under contract with MGM. So instead, we get Frederick March. And aside from a great performance from him, the movie's most important achievement is Wally Westmore's makeup. Wally Westmore went for a more simian appearance to Mr. Hyde, the, the way it's described in the book, really. He also created this amazing transformation scene that still looks good today. Seriously, go look it up on YouTube. The facial changes are all done with different colors and makeup and lens filters. It's it's really impressive. I mean, of course, like every single adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, at some point he ducks down below camera sight and then comes back up as Mr. Hyde. But the the bits before that are, are really impressive. Two months later, in February of 1932, MGM would release Todd Browning's Freaks. And I am now finally going to talk about Todd Browning. Todd Browning had actually worked in a bunch of carnivals and circuses as a younger man. He worked as a barker for the wild man of Borneo. He worked as a performer in a live burial act billed as the living corpse. His power is to be a corpse. And he also worked as a clown with the Ringling Brothers Circus. Little person actor Harry Earls had appeared in Browning's film The Unholy Three and suggested to Browning that he make a film version of Todd Robbins' short story Spurs. Spurs is about a little person with a, a very large sum of money who gets used by this woman for his money and then uh, he basically gets his revenge. Well, Freaks plays out in a very similar way. Browning had urged MGM to buy the rights to the film and to hire him to direct, which they actually did considering his past success with horror film. The film included performances by real sideshow performers, including conjoined twins and a man with microcephaly. This could have been, of course, just a film portraying these particular people as freaks, as the title suggests. But rather than showing the performers as monsters, they're shown doing everyday activities. The story really humanizes them, and it actually confronts the viewer with their humanity and it ends very gruesomely really worth a watch this the ending is very very gruesome 1932 also brought us the first feature-length zombie film the nation had a sudden interest in voodoo because of the publication of william b seabrook's book on haitian voodoo the magic island the film was also inspired by kenneth webb's broadway play zombie White Zombie was a United Artists film starring Bela Lugosi as a white Haitian voodoo master with a crew of zombies. 
the film may not like really hold up but it is the archetype for zombie films which makes it a huge part of the history of horror cinema carl jr over at universal also got inspired by a recent story of national interest the opening of king tut's tomb and the supposed curse of the pharaoh so carl jr ordered his story guys to get on some sort of mummy story find anything they could maybe to adapt the original treatment of the story given to Carl was set in San Francisco and was about a 3,000-year-old magician who survives by injecting nitrates and takes revenge on every woman who resembles his ex-lover. Fortunately, they hired John L. Balderston, the writer of the Dracula play, and he had a credit on the film. Balderston was also a journalist who had covered the opening of King Tut's tomb. Balderston moved the setting to Egypt, duh, and made the mummy's driving force to mummify the reincarnation of his past love. Much more relatable. This much better idea was finally titled The Mummy. Carl Freund was brought on to direct. Boris Karloff to star as Imhotep. And Jack Pierce, you keep hearing that name, was back to knock the makeup out of the park. However, the movie certainly does find it's time to make Eastern cultures seem primitive, so that's no fun. Speaking of movies with a theme of Western superiority over so-called primitive cultures, in 1933, RKO Pictures released King Kong. The film would inspire so many creature features in the 50s that it is undoubtedly a part of the history of horror cinema. The primary interest of the film is to get to the heart of the monster, which has been the effect and or goal of so many of the films that I've been talking about in this episode. Lon Chaney's performance as Quasimodo and the Phantom, Boris Karloff's performance as Frankenstein's Creature, as well as Tom Browning's Freaks, all draw us into sympathizing with the supposedly monstrous. King Kong was groundbreaking in terms of special effects. The film uses stop-motion animation, matte painting, rear projection, miniatures. The stop-motion work of Willis O'Brien would be highly influential. He would later take on a protege by the name of Ray Harryhausen. November of 1933 brought us The Invisible Man, directed by James Whale, and starring Claude Rains in his first major film role. It actually became his favorite, mostly because he said he couldn't stand to see his own fat face on screen. So, playing Invisible worked out for him. The film's based on H.G. Wells' 1897 novel, and also a novel by the screenplay co-writer Philip Wiley titled The Murderer Invisible. It's known for its visual effects, Devised by cinematographers and special effect innovators John H. Mescal, Frank D. Williams, and John P. Fulton, the man who parted the Red Sea in the Ten Commandments. Check out the I'll Show You Who I Am scene from this movie to see for yourself just how interesting and innovative those special effects really were. Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi would actually star together for the first time in The Black Cat, which was based on Edgar Allan Poe's short story. It would actually be the second of three Poe adaptations from Universal starring Lugosi. He'd also starred in Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1932 and would go on to star in The Raven in 1935. It was the first of eight collaborations between Karloff and Lugosi throughout their careers. Universal had been considering a sequel to Frankenstein as early as preview screenings of the film in 1931. They actually changed the film's original ending to allow Henry Frankenstein to survive before the film was widely released. 
Because of the Invisible Man's success, Carl Limley Jr. wanted James Whale to direct Bride of Frankenstein and secured him by agreeing to let him make the film One More River, which would also be a success. The sequel swerves from the novel and actually giving the creature the mate he demands. It's that change that introduces us to Elsa Lanchester as the Bride of Frankenstein. She is as adept at creating a sympathetic monster as her co-star Boris Karloff, and her look, co-created by Jack Pierce and James Whale, is absolutely iconic. Pierce also updated Karloff's makeup to reflect damage incurred in the mill fire at the end of the first film. And he also modified the makeup over the course of filming to indicate that the wounds were healing. That's some attention to detail. The film also introduces a new and interesting element in the character of Dr. Septimus Pretorius, played by Ernest Thesiger. The character is frequently identified as homosexual or as close to homosexual as could be presented on screen in 1935. Director James Whale was openly gay and Thesiger himself was gay as well. Whale directed Thesiger to play the part as, quote, an over-the-top caricature of a bitchy and aging homosexual. Just three weeks later in May of 1935, Werewolf of London would become the first Hollywood mainstream film to feature a werewolf. The film starred Henry Hull as the werewolf, Dr. Wilfred Glendon, and right away Hull had a problem with Jack Pierce's werewolf design. Pierce's design was essentially the same design that would be used six years later for Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman. Hall believed that more of the werewolf's face should be visible as he was recognized by characters in the script. Hall took it to Carl Limley Jr. and Limley asked Pierce to tone down the makeup. Pierce refused, leaving Henry Hall to do his own makeup. While the makeup Lon Chaney Jr. wears is more recognizable as the Universal Wolfman, Henry Hull's makeup is iconic and seems to be the inspiration for Eddie Munster's werewolf look in The Munsters. Werewolf of London would go on to be a box office disappointment and Carl Jr. would go back to the Dracula well with Dracula's daughter in 1936. The film was loosely based on an unpublished chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula and on Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. And if you know anything about Carmilla, you know it's the 1872 gothic novella written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu that deals with a lesbian relationship. Those same implications were obvious in the script for Dracula's Daughter, which got the attention of a newer antagonist in Hollywood filmmaking, the Production Code Administration. Their head, Joseph Breen, nixed some of the more overt lesbian content, though most of it made it into the film, and some that would be cut made it into advertisement for the film, including the tagline, Save the Women of London from Dracula's Daughter. Some reviewers of the day caught the implications in many of the moments in the film, while the New York Times reviewer advised, be sure to bring the kitties. Though the film is definitely worth a watch, as Anne Rice has claimed it is the inspiration for the homoerotic relationships in her own work, and it had great effects by Jack Pierce and that guy who parted the Red Sea, John P. Fulton. Dracula's Daughter would be the last horror film in Universal Studios' golden age of horror. The Limley family would find themselves removed from control of Universal Studios after a number of bad budgetary decisions. The Universal monsters would have further adventures, but the tone would begin to shift radically. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Next time, we're going to talk about Hollywood's self-censorship, the effect it had on, on the horror films, the rise of B-movies, 
We're going to talk about Val Luton. We're going to get into all sorts of interesting stuff. Did I miss a whole bunch of films along the way? Of course I did. This is just an introductory history. I will go so much deeper in future seasons, but for this season, all I wanted to do was really hit the introductory highlights. Be sure to check out my other podcast, Dead and Lovely, for weekly reviews of horror movies from me and my co-host, intergalactic rock star, Ben Eller, the very same Ben Eller who made the music for this very podcast. Go check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Dead Lovely Pod or on our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash dead and lovely. You can also help us continue to provide you with more and more content by heading over to patreon.com forward slash dead and lovely and becoming a patron. Until next week, I've been Hollywood Steve and this has been Legacy of Brutality. Bye.